Hello, and welcome back to the Grey Album Podcast. I'm Peter, I'm joined by Abraham, and today we'll be talking about two films, uh, Mid-90s from 2018 and American Beauty from 1999. So why don't you kick us off with mid-90s, Abraham? These were your two choices for this week. Yeah, this week it was my two choices. I decided to choose these two movies because uh, both of them are an analysis of America in the 1990s. One is from a perspective at the time, from 1999, so it's kind of that late 90s. You can feel how tired they were with the culture, and it's kind of maybe slightly edgy, slightly satirical take. And then one is from 2018, which is a more nostalgic look back, a look, uh, look at uh, the childhood of the 90s from the perspective of people who grew up there and then were looking back fondly on it uh, and how, how they remember the, the culture of the 90s. So that's why I chose those two movies. Um, let's start with talking about mid-90s. Um, and I'll give a brief summary of the plot. If you don't like spoilers and just want to hear our analysis, although our analysis will be full of spoilers, just skip ahead a couple minutes. But honestly, this is a very plot-thin movie, so I wouldn't... There aren't really spoilers. Yeah, there aren't really spoilers, so... (laughs) (laughs) Right, so Stevie is a 13-year-old kid from a single-mother household. He meets a crew of older teenage skaters and slowly makes friends with them and joins the crew. They get up to various shenanigans, mostly centred around skating... His mom doesn't like that and the influence they have on him. Uh, Eventually, there's a car crash. Stevie gets injured, um, but the friends stick by him the whole time. And in the end, the mom realizes what good friends they are. So that's the very, uh, very bare bones of the almost non-existent plot. But that's not really what the movie's about. The movie's not about the plot. It's more about the vibes. It's more about um, what I thought they did a great job with especially on the, the very low budget they had in uh, capturing that kind of 90s feel both in terms of the visuals and the atmosphere and the dialogue and the characters it felt very real it didn't feel especially with with you know teenage and, and, and you know very quite young actors i thought they did a great job at just like showing like real scenarios that, that happened and could happen and i felt very immersed in the whole thing um i think the movie was also shot on cameras from the period so it felt, um, I don't know, I, I, I just, I chose that movie because I really liked the vibe of it. Um, when did just, you first see it? What what made you watch it? I probably watched it in 2019, something like that. And I just watched it because I was, I think it was Jonah Hill's directorial debut. So I thought, let's see. <laughs> and I was actually surprised. I thought it would be more goofy, uh, more silly and probably worse. Um, but I thought he just made like a nice fairly short movie which had good vibes the, and actually weird what, thing sorry go ahead yeah sorry my my weird experience with this movie was uh i heard about it i think it's an a24 movie which is that you know independent studio that has a lot of good films and there's a following from that but i wasn't i wasn't really interested in it and then i think on twitter or something 
I read a tweet about how it's actually a school shooter movie. And I thought that would like be the big twist where this guy is in like a Columbine situation at the end and it pretends to be a skateboard movie. And then at the end, it's like a Columbine movie. And I was like, no way am I going to watch that. So when you suggested it, I was I was like going through the movie, you know, you know, it was it was giving me all these like stories about about the skate kids i was just waiting for like the columbine ending where they shoot the kid or something and it didn't happen so either i like hallucinated that tweet or it was satirical or something bro uh, i I was on edge that's amazing i'm trying to stop myself laughing over here that's absolutely i'm just imagining you sitting there watching this movie it's just all about like chill vibes and you're waiting and waiting for like the the columbine moment I think that would have ruined the movie, but it might have worked. I don't know. Because, like, the thing, the movie very rarely shows the school, which I think is is, uh, part of the reason uh, it it can't be a Columbine movie. Because you would need, you would need, like, at least to show like the creepy killer kids in, in, like, the background or, like, bullying him at lunch or something. Uh, but here they're barely at school. It's all about their relationships outside of school. And I, I'm glad it didn't turn out to be a Columbine movie because what we got was something... I, I didn't love it, but I could definitely see myself like putting it on when I'm in a certain mood just to just to go back to, to the 90s. What I'm, what I'm most surprised about is that your reaction to, to thinking it was a Columbine movie was, oh, no way I'd watch that. <laughs> uh, have there been any Columbine movies apart from the Michael Moore documentary? Um, there's actually one on our uh, list on our Google Doc where we have a list of movies we're going to watch. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, that's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to tell you which one it is. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> there, there, there was also like a, a Ben Shapiro Daily Wire movie about a girl like killing the, the school shooters. Uh, which, which apparently was okay, but I don't. I don't. Think I know that, that sounds so bad. <laughs> it was like run, hide, fight. I think it was. Oh like, yeah, I think I think I heard about that back, back uh, when it came out. Anyway, um, you, you mentioned the the way this film was shot, and uh, it's it's in this like four three or something like that yeah. box format, which drove me slightly insane. But also, I I totally got why they did it because it's a, it's like claustrophobic. But the, the thing is, nothing the movie is showing is claustrophobic. Maybe I don't know the pressures of the friendship group or something like that. But it's the, the there are scenes of them skating. And but like I think I think it's is... also it's also that it's like it's like a memory. Mm. Because even the color scheme and a lot of a lot of things, it feels like it feels like it's a nostalgic memory. And I think that the four three aspect ratio like contributes to that. And it's also, it's it's shot like a skating video. Yeah, there's yeah. a the, there's a skating video in the film itself, but but the way it's shot reminds me probably purposefully of of a skating video, uh, where where it's it's plotless. It's it's got all these like fu- funny scenes. Yeah, I, I remember. I, I'm sort of just old enough to remember like skating culture in its zenith in the early two thousands, 
um, like going around like the city and just being like skaters everywhere. Everywhere there was like a, a park that had enough concrete and enough ledges and enough, you know, small walls. There were skaters like doing crazy stuff. I remember my friend who was a little bit older than me, he was super into skating and he was always trying to get us to go to like the skate park and like that whole culture. And then by the time I, I grew up, it was sort of gone. And then a couple of years ago, I, w- I was in Eastern Europe, um, in, in, in an Eastern European capital city. And like me and my friend, we went to like the park and there was a skate park there. And everyone there was dressed like it was 2004. They were all skating. It was super <laughs> packed. There were these like older, like like cool guys at the side, like playing music from a boom box. There was like girls sitting there, like watching all the cool skaters. And it really felt like I was just like <laughs> taken back like 15 years. And I was like, holy shit, like literally nothing, nothing about that scene made sense for 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 the year it was and everything about it was perfectly fitting the the early 2000s aesthetic so that was like i don't know the, it was just so cool the, the thing about skating and you got it from this movie is that there's that rebellious side you know you know definitely when whenever teenagers are hanging outside of school uh there's definitely going to be be some of that but it is at its heart, it's quite. It's a nice thing. It's not like a. It, it it's not like a terribly antisocial, horrible hobby that's pointless. You, you know, it's a sport where you, where you hang out with people. That there's a lot of that like mentorship, where where the older guys teach the younger guys, and uh, you're sort of socialized in, into that 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 male friend group, and. Um, it's a shame it's gone. Like I don't remember the last time I saw. I I I may have seen like isolated skaters, but it's like a guy like longboarding to the office or whatever. It's not. Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah. There's no, there's no it's skate, not like the no skate community. Ring. Yeah. Mm. I'll give you. I'll give you just two of my skating anecdotes, which was my uh, my older brother was a skater. And uh, my parents were kind of supportive of it, but they 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 forced him to buy what do you call it? like knee pads and uh, and uh, elbow pads and stuff like that. Elbow pads, yeah. yeah. And which I think probably all all the other skaters like laughed at him because of that. Whoa. But um, yeah, and he had like he had a beanie and stuff, but he was he wasn't. I I don't think he was great, and he wasn't that committed to it either. But my my dad then bought me, oh god, I must have been about like six or something, and I still have it in the the garage, a children's skateboard, and uh, you know he set it he set it out in front of me. I think we probably went to the park or something, and then within about five minutes, he saw that I was totally incapable of <laughs> of using it i i couldn't even like do the thing where like you have one foot on it and you use the other foot to uh to propel you forward i just kept falling over and that then he took away the skateboard and said that you're, you're never gonna be a skater <laughs> and it still hangs there in, in, in the garage taunting me uh <laughs> so i i never had the hand-eye coordination to do it properly um, did you ever actually try skating? Or? Yeah, I was totally, totally hopeless as well. Yeah, 
I, remember, I couldn't yeah. even. Yeah, I could. I couldn't the... do the. I couldn't do the basic things either. I remember my friend, the the older friend I'd mentioned, like he used to tell me, like try when you're on the bus, try like not holding anything, just standing and not holding anything. That <laughs> that'll train you to skate. And so I did that for like ages, and it made absolutely no difference <laughs> on my skating. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Did you ever do the the scooter? I couldn't do that either. Wait, like uh... the, like like a like a scooter with handlebars. No. Uh, like the what, what do you call it? Like the metal thing in the shape of an L. Stand on it. Yes, in yeah, the shape yeah. of an L. No, but okay. not yeah, not could... motor power. Yeah, I know. I, yeah, yeah, I could do that. It's not that hard. But you couldn't do that <laughs> I couldn't one. Even do oh, that. Come on. <laughs> okay, that's like. <laughs> that, okay, that that's too much. <laughs> I I'm very good on a bike though. I'll have you know. Uh, and the other skater anecdote I have was um. The skating thing sort of became a, a, a long-running joke in my family, and I was I was in Los Angeles at one point uh, on holiday with my parents, and we're going through the downtown area, and I hear that area is horrible now, but back back then I think they they managed to ward off all the the filth and squalor, but every every once in a while something would get through their private security. It, it's like the it's the area with all the big skyscrapers where the banks and headquarters are. Yeah, yeah. And um, we're just walking there. It, it's very you, you know safe, cor- corporatized area. And out of nowhere, a, a roving band of skaters uh, just appear. And I think they're what. One of them was like forty-five or something, and he—he he was clearly the chief. He was like this dreadlocked white man with a beard, that, and um, a, a beanie, and then he had about like four or five followers. One—one one of whom was probably about like teenage or, or something like that. The the rest, I don't know, were, were probably in their their late teens, early twenties. But they 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 were just like running and skating down the street, and they passed us on on the pavement. And uh, in a flash, I saw like my alternate future ahead of me. If I had been, if if I had been capable on the skateboard, I could have I could have joined them and you know fled polite society and become a a roving skater. Yeah, like that band. kid in the in the first season of White Lotus. <laughs> Yes, but uh, the the thing is, they weren't they weren't threatening or unclean or anything. They they were just like they were living their best lives. They were like surfers in a way. Yeah, uh, just, uh, what, just roaming what year the was city. This, roughly, mm. it it was a twenty nineteen, I think, which okay. was why it surprised yeah. me yeah. and why yeah, I remember like a, it so la- much. Last of the skaters moment. Yeah, and the, the last but like outs. what got me was how old some of them were. Yeah, and how yeah how very early two thousands nineties they looked. Uh, yeah, so sh- should we talk about the actual movie for a bit? <laughs> I mean, I'm or actually the... quite happy with the, with the direction this has taken. I mean, just talking about skating and cool stuff and like fun <laughs> memories like that. I think that's that's the value of our podcast. Yeah. You know what I loved in this movie? What? I I'm a bit of a I'm a bit of like a hi-fi audiophile mm-hmm. geek. Oh yeah, I remember I don't... Like when we first met you were like, "Oh, I collect uh, <laughs> records, vinyl records with my dad." Yeah. And yeah. Like for while I, while I still didn't know you, that was like the sum of your personality for me. So every, <laughs> everything you did I was judging on that on that uh, basis. I was like, "Yeah, he's the vinyl oh. guy, so therefore X, Y, and Z." 
yeah i i just i love the 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 hi-fi equipment in this movie they have like the the tall silver towers of speakers mm -hmm. and all the yeah. cds and yeah. um, uh i'm i'm convinced cds are due for a comeback and I, I might need to start collecting CDs again. No, I, because... I, think, I think it's true. I think a lot of, I think as Zoomers are getting older and more nostalgic, especially the, the earlier, the younger, the older Zoomers, sorry. I think they're going, going to go through the phase that the millennials went through in the 2010s of wanting to like bring back like tech and just like stuff from their youth. So I think just as how vinyl records like soared in the early 2010s with like millennial nostalgics, I think Zoomers are going to start bringing back some stuff from the 2000s soon. I think people poo-pooed CDs because they were like, oh, the audio quality is not that good and whatever. But they're, they're available used incredibly cheaply, you know, £1, £50 at a charity shop. Um, part part of the frill is always hunting hunting for new new stuff, and uh, you know you own it. No one's gonna take it. Like uh, the, I I have a Spotify playlist of all all these like politically incorrect songs, and it's funny seeing slowly seeing some of them get grayed out, which means they've been taken off the platform. Uh, so that's no, that's never going to happen with your Zuma yeah, CD. Exactly, collection. exactly. I've had that as well. One of my one of my songs that I like is a, is a cover of an NWA song, but in the style of an indie band, and it's obviously white people singing, and that's been uh, taken off. It's, it's, literally, it's, it's an NWA song <laughs> with like ukuleles. Like it's funny. It's not supposed to be anyone. Yeah. Anyway, I'm I'm getting off on a rant. Yeah. The, the well. That used to be a thing in in like late two thousands, early twenty tens culture, was like the, the parody song on YouTube and the the like funny oh we'll make NWA but with ukuleles and now now not even that that humor is, yeah. is allowed yeah. at all. Um, I mean, I, w I was thinking recently. I don't know if you remember the channel Epic Rap Battles of History. Yes, <laughs> that was like a huge channel back in twenty ten. Like the, the stuff they had on there could never be made nowadays. <laughs> I remember watching on an iPod Touch. You know, wow, uh, back back in the day, yeah. iPod Touches are going to make a comeback. How about that? How about that for prediction? Ooh, see, I don't think that's going to happen. Just because the thing with like CDs is they're not they're not slow. An iPod Touch is going to be slow, but all the all the hi-fi equipment holds up it's mm -hmm. it's it's designed to last yeah i read yeah. somewhere that for some weird reason people are buying old playstation ones to play cds on because apparently the very first edition of the ps1 has some chip or something and it's made by sony and it's w apparently one of the best cd players you can buy uh value for money wise uh, they really like ramped up the CD playing potential. That there's just something so so attractive yeah, about yeah. 90s technology. But yeah. I, I I wonder how much of it is nostalgia and how much of it is actually because it was cool looking and good. And yeah, and, I remember know, my my dad well. was also super into hi-fi stuff. He was a he was a he was in tech in, in computing back mm. then, and he had like it all set up. Like he he had his office in our in our in our garage 
And so he had like these huge 90s, like huge speakers that were like the size of me at the time. Yes. Like all connected to his 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 PC in like a surround sound like setting. And it was just the coolest thing ever. And it's like now I just put on my like decent headphones and that's it. Like I want like huge, like, like, like <laughs> five foot tall speakers surrounding me while I'm on my PC. And that was just like normal. That was like normal for like a techie, someone who was into into PCs and into into music, to just have stuff like that back then. Yeah, I I have a theory where tech knowledge has declined since the nineties. Like I don't or or mid two thousand. Like there's a lot of stuff I just don't understand. And of course, I can you I can use a computer well, like anyone, and probably better better than some people, but. I, I just think, you know, the, the 90s dads, I don't think I could plug in a hi-fi system like that without without watching, like, four YouTube videos first. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they, no, it's, it's so true. I mean, even one of my millennial friends who likes to dunk on me for being a Zoomer, he sent me a link recently about a study that shows that, like, millennials have way better tech skills than, than Zoomers because, like, Zoomers grew up with, like, iPhones where everything's done, everything's super smooth and, and how you deal with the, with the input. Whereas millennials actually had to like troubleshoot problems like on computers in the two thousands, and the you know internet piracy. They don't the bloody zoomers can't can't get uTorrents and uh, pirate bay. Yeah, or whatever. yeah, not not that we use that, but no, uh, just, I, I would never a theoretical I just, I just example. Want, yeah, I just want to put out there that I would never I would never break the law. I, I would never steal a car. I would never steal a handbag. I would never <laughs> steal a movie. <laughs> No, or the the FBI is gonna get you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> J- just fi- final off topic bit. You remember when DVDs had like hard coded adverts at the beginning of them that you could never skip, and not just internet piracy ones, but adverts advertising other DVDs. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. At, le- at least with, with videotapes, you could, like, physically fast-forward it. Yeah. But with, with DVDs, it was like, you could, they, they prevented you from doing that. I that also remember insane. talking about, like, 90s dads and, and piracy <laughs> and tech like that. I remember my dad used to get DVDs, and he could, like, rip the movie from them. And, like, he could, like, bypass the, the anti, anti-piracy software on the, on the DVDs. And, like, that was, like, so cool back then. <laughs> and it's, like, now, like... I guarantee you, like nobody's done that for like twelve years. Nobody has bought a physical yeah. DVD and then ripped the <laughs> ripped the video file from it to play on a computer. We had a family friend who was like so into burning CDs that I don't know if you need like a special printer or something, but he managed to like print images on the, on the CDs. Yeah, we were always right right on it with yeah. with a permanent marker. Oh but my god, they were like. Print yes. out like an image. <laughs> yeah, my dad had that. I remember when he got that because he used to he used to to play because to play like torrented movies back then, you had to like get, you got the movie as a digital file, then you had to put it onto a onto a DVD and then play it through your DVD player onto the TV. And my dad got the special tray for the printer so that he could print like the image of the movie on this <laughs> on the DVD. Oh, I can't, I literally have not thought about that since like two thousand nine or something. Amazing. How, amazing. How does it work? Like it doesn't, it I, it doesn't like do the thing where the paper, like you, you know how the paper goes through in that figure. Yeah, eight no, thing it's like it's printer. like a special tray, and you put the DVD in the slot on the tray, and then you go in, and then I, I assume you probably need some software so it doesn't spray everywhere. Um, but I'm not sure. I'm actually not sure how it worked. I just remember it being wow. so cool. 
And then we used to keep them in these little plastic, like plastic pouches, like yeah, like the wallet where you yeah, you'd have yeah. like hundreds. Yeah. <laughs> oh, those those were the days. Yeah, and that was like, like literally like such a waste of ink. Like there was no reason to print the fucking <laughs> image of the movie onto the DVD. You could have literally written the marker on it what the movie was. But everything was about cool back then. Yeah, like it made it feel official. It was like your own your yeah, own thing. Yeah. Um, Oh, and then I remember people funny. used to like like do like hundreds of these and then put them in like and then sell them in in car boot sales and stuff like that. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, imagine go, imagine I, I... imagine in nowadays going to a car boot sale and buying bootleg DVDs. You know what I have have done uh all all legally of course. I occasionally yeah give out like USB sticks of of films. If I yeah. turn to my left, I can see four USB sticks that you gave me about a year, year and a half ago. I still, I still have no, yeah. I still have no idea what's on them. I, I told you That's... to surprise me, and I've got them here sitting on my desk, and I still haven't plugged them in. Yeah, I don't. But I, I if someone, if someone sold me that at a car boot sale, and they looked like they knew what they were doing. No, they looked like a film buff. I would pay like five pounds for a <laughs> one hundred twenty-eight gigabyte USB of carefully curated, uh, curated films. So j- just to get back to the film, um, y- you can tell we're talking around the film because there there isn't really that much to talk about apart from the atmosphere and the vibes. It's all very. I, I found it fine, essentially. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. I thought it was an interesting portrait of what what happened. Uh, the I I found the ending funny, where the 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 skating gang essentially endangered the lie the life of this this kid, and uh, but they all go and see him in hospital uh after when he's recovering from the accident they caused or one of them caused. And then his mum sees that they all they all care for him, so it's all fine. I, it, it was just like too too neat of a bow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. That was that was. I mean, I suppose they needed a feel good ending because there was no plot, there was no narrative arc. They needed some kind of feel good ending. So having the mum accept the friends was, I guess, you know, why not? Yeah, I I didn't hate it, but I I I just think the mum. The mum would have gone mental and yeah. just, <laughs> just started like berating all of them for nearly murdering a child. Uh, right, do you, do you have any final thoughts on, on mid-90s? Or just we, one. On the, one of the things I was surprised about was I was expecting to, like, when, upon rewatch, to think, yeah, that was nice. But I actually really, really enjoyed it upon rewatch. I just, I don't know, I just mm. love the vibe they captured. And because nor- normally I'm not some I om- I very rarely enjoy a movie the second time more than the first time. There's like I can count on one hand the amount of movies where I've really enjoyed it more the second time, and I, so and so I was expecting not to enjoy it the second time. Uh, and I just thought the the vibe is so nice. I really liked it the second time. I was smiling the whole time. I was very surprised at that. Oh, interesting. Yeah, definitely the 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 vibe type of movies really benefit from rewatches if you're in the right mood because yeah captures, i think i must have also been in the right the vibe, mood for yeah. that so the the second movie for for this podcast is american beauty from 1999 which i actually hadn't seen before so why don't why don't you give us a, a quick summary of american beauty abraham 
okay it has quite the sporadic plot if you haven't seen it before you're gonna be like okay this sounds totally just like a random series of events <laughs> um but yeah let me let me tell you what happened so lester burnham played by kevin spacey i think i'll just probably refer to him as kevin spacey for the rest of the <laughs> yeah. the rest of the pod <laughs> Uh, he lives a totally mundane life, has a miserable, sexless marriage with his neurotic wife, and he has like this edgy teenage daughter who's like a bit of an emo teenage girl who's just like thinks who just like hates everything. Um, but she has a friend Angela who's like this beautiful blonde, pretty girl, uh, and Kevin Spacey becomes infatuated with her. So just imagine as if it was Kevin Spacey in real life. <laughs> Um, he overhears Angela saying to his daughter that she thinks that Kevin Spacey is hot and would totally bang him if he worked out a little. This starts his rebellion, where he starts working out, he quits his job, extorts his boss for a full year's salary plus benefits, and doesn't give a damn what his wife thinks. Meanwhile, the daughter falls for the neighbor's son, the, these are new neighbors who have just moved next door, who's this total creep with a camera and he's constantly filming stuff including her like she'll be in her room and he'll be across the road or across the in the next house across standing in his room like in his dark room just like filming her on his video on his camcorder because it's back then totally creepy stuff but uh eventually she she finds it like she likes the fact that somebody's actually interest, interested in her and so she falls for him and and the, she finds him like this deep, like uh, meaningful guy. Like he's he's not he's not vain or fake, <laughs> fake like other people. Um, the father of this kid is characterized as like an extreme, like like totally schizo stereotype of a homophobic right winger. But turns out he's actually gay. Who could have guessed that? And when he and when he that character, he for 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 reasons suspects that Kevin Spacey is also gay. He then makes a move on Kevin Spacey. Kevin is like, sorry, buddy, it's a bit of a misunderstanding. He's super chill about it. Uh, and then the guy, like, freaks out and kills him. Comes back, like, later like later that evening with a gun and kills Kevin Spacey. In the final moments before his death, he's happy because he finally lived life on his own terms for that, for that, uh, for the duration of the movie during his rebellion. And so he dies happily and then his daughter and the neighbor's son run away to New York. So from that uh, plot description, it sounds like, as I said, totally random series of events that seem unrelated. But in the movie, it kind of works out. I initially watched this movie when I was a teenager, and I thought it was great. Um, Rewatching it, I thought there was some funny moments, um, some good some good scenes with Kevin Spacey. Obviously, he's a very, very talented actor. So there were some funny scenes with him. But overall, like the messaging seemed very forced. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't the movie I remembered it to be. To be honest, I think, I think, in the way that it, it pretends to be like anti-establishment or rebellious or avant-garde, it's actually very stale, and just like all the, like the theme. The themes are stale and very mainstream, actually, especially from a from a twenty twenty three perspective. And so I don't know. It's like it's like a good it's a good movie. It's, it's well made, uh, and as I said, there's some really funny scenes, but I'm not sure it really holds up, um, and probably doesn't deserve the reputation it's got as being this amazing movie. Yeah, I think I have to agree with you. I wasn't. It's a well made movie, but it just the the messaging and 
the point of it I didn't I didn't really like and the the I think my main issue with is probably like the the characters and the realism like none of the none of the characters ring true to me uh even like they're all they're all meant to be they're all meant to be these like uh personifications of american life in in suburbia but they all seem so exaggerated and uh sometimes stereotypical or sometimes just just over the top that uh that i i could never see see like their their problems mapping on to the problems of other people living in suburbia like uh the, the 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 wife of Kevin Spacey, played by Annette Benning, for example, I think she's done a total disservice. She she's just the nagging career woman wife, who uh, who's given no sympathy at all. At at the end, it looks like she might be the one who goes and kills Kevin Spacey, because at the beginning you you find out he does a voiceover where he's already dead, basically. Um, and it, it might be her. She's just treated, I think, just a, as a stereotype. Uh, even you know, oh, the blonde cheerleader girl and the the gay homophobe. It all it all just seems a bit bit too neat. I I don't know. That that was my main issue uh, with it. Yeah, I think so. And I think also some of the things, even on its own terms, that it tries to achieve, it only like tells you that. Um, through through visuals and doesn't actually show it in characters' actions. So I think one of the themes is like the 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 normal people are shallow, the normal beautiful people are shallow, and the freaks are like the deep real people. But it doesn't. I think that's one of the things it's trying to it's trying to show. But yet the characters who are the freaks are just as shallow in in their actions and in their 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 thoughts and in 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 the way they're they actually what they actually do on screen. To the to the so-called beautiful fake people, who are the the the, the object the, the the of of you know derision that they that are being portrayed as as okay these these people are boring these people are fake, it's actually you know the the the, the edgy emo people, that are the real people and yet the edgy emo people totally suck, and are totally not interesting and totally not deep, and they're also they're also only superficially edgy. Uh, like they're not, uh, you know, they're all still attractive and normal enough to be to be in a Hollywood movie. Yeah, that's um, that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like, like, like the creepy, the creepy kid across the across the street or across the in the, in the other building who's filming her. Like, like in real life, the creepy high school kid who's always filming girls <laughs> does not look like an Abercrombie and Fitch model. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, yeah, that that that's it. Like Abercrombie and Fitch as well. Uh, like since since we're doing like the nineties, two thousands. That's such a specific look and idea of like, like brand that's totally gone gone out of fashion. I I don't know if you like know anything, but the um, I think they recently like accused the CEO of uh harassment, but also their main. Uh, the main photographer is this guy called Bruce Weber, who was uh, 
who basically does all the marketing campaigns and stuff. And if you look at his photos, he, he's, he's he's basically a genius. But they're all these... They have this, like, fascist look uh, to them, where it's all these, like, half-naked men, usually, because I, I think he, he was gay himself. And uh, uh, all, all these men, or like, blonde women, uh, blue eyes, they're always, like, playing sport or in nature. And that, that really defined the Abercrombie and Fitch look. And now that's just gone totally out of fashion and if you if you look at their website now uh you know it, it's the it's the models that don't even look like models or you know they're models because they're weird looking not not because they're uh they're attractive looking but uh, sorry that that's just an aside uh in a way the most sympathetic character in the movie is angela the the blonde cheerleader because like she she basically does nothing wrong Everyone else kind of does something wrong, and sh- sure, she's a bit she's a bit annoying, and, and she's kind of mean to her friend. But like, she doesn't seem as corrupted as as the rest of society portrayed in this film, which I think is the opposite of what they were going for. I mean, maybe she's mm. she's deliberately portrayed as being sympathetic in the final scene where she, where Kevin asks her like, "How's my daughter doing?" and she's quite mature and gives him an answer. So maybe maybe I'm being too harsh on the on the producers, but at least for like the first like eighty percent of the movie, it feels like she's portrayed as just being totally vapid, and and the, and the problem with 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 American society in the nineties, just fake blonde girl who just bitches and just uh, there's nothing nothing beyond the the lies and the and the you know the gossip that she tells. Um, but again, actually looking at how the how the characters behave. Again, she is probably one of the most more sympathetic characters. She's 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 like a. In terms of the behavior of a teenager, like it's not what she's doing is not that not normal, un, not that unnormal. Um, meanwhile, Kevin Spacey's daughter is just like a horrible person. She's horrible to her parents. <laughs> she's going to run away with this the creepy guy across the road. Um, Who films the plastic bags? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also, here I'll point on the plastic bag. So, the, so in the movie, there's this plastic bag that that blows in the wind, and this has been filmed by the creepy guy. Um, yeah, and he shows it to her, and the way he's talking about it is like as if there's so much meaning behind this plastic bag going in the wind. And it's like this movie is entirely a materialist movie, and so to have this plastic bag there as a motif basically means nothing. It's, this is not some like you know Zen Buddhist movie. With with these kind of you know esoteric Eastern, you know metaphysics behind it, it's a totally materialist movie, and so the bag the bag the bag motif is totally out of place. It doesn't work. It doesn't mean anything. It's just supposed to, supposed just there to show that this uh, this guy with the camera, he's such a deep thinker. He sees the beauty in life. He sees beauty in in seeing a, a, a corpse of a dead animal, you know, uh, lying lying there. It's just I don't know. You guys could have done something better than that. Yeah, the the symbolism is so heavy-handed. It's like, oh, like uh, Kevin Spacey's character has all these fantasies, and it's it's always just the Angela, the cheerleader, and roses, like red rose petals, all the time. And uh, yeah, it, it just feels a bit staid and uh, uninteresting. Did you did you find? Kevin Spacey's character sympathetic. 
Yeah, in a way I did. I I, I just, yeah, I, I couldn't help but like Kevin Spacey's character, to be honest. Um, I like the scene where he's, wor- he's just working out and the wife comes and screams at him and he just doesn't care and keeps lifting. Like that was like a hair. That was like a bro moment. Like I think any bro can 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 get on board with that. I mean, uh, the stuff at work again was a bit is a bit forced, and then going and working in a fast food place, like okay, whatever. <laughs> but in, no, in general, I found I found him quite sympathetic at the at the the evening party where he goes and smokes weed. Like I found that sympathetic, where he just like doesn't care about like his wife being being a career suck up. And so he goes and smokes weed with with the teen behind the, you know, behind the event. But yeah, well, one thing that, that sort of stood out there was like, was nineties weed really that strong? I'm not sure. I'm not sure, I'm not sure about that. Two thousand two thousand dollars a pound for nineties weed. I'm not sure about that. Another thing that was kind uh, of funny, yeah, adjusted yeah. for inflation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Twenty twenty three moment. Biden inflation. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, go on. <laughs> what was I going to say? Oh yeah, but he, he's portrayed as like this, as a loser, right? By by the standards of the time, even though he's forty two. Yeah, has a, he has a huge, <laughs> a huge house in like a nice suburban area, two cars, like a wife and a daughter, and he's like forty two, forty three. He makes he makes at that time, you know, fifty thousand dollars a year plus benefits. Like what? Like I would I, if I'm that <laughs> by the time I'm forty three. That's that that's like you know i've made it so it's just so crazy that that that's was portrayed as like a normal loser like he just hates his day job even though he's making really good money and has a big house and whatever um yeah it's, it's, it's like that like i think a lot of people mention like how the, the simpsons like homer is considered like this total loser even though you know he works in a nuclear power plant and has a, a big house and a family and a, a wife that doesn't need to work it was just like that was so normal back then that someone like that could easily be portrayed as as a loser in media, and nobody would bat an eyelid. Yeah, or or the 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 giant apartment they have in Friends, uh, <laughs> where they're all like struggling. Twenty. Yeah, yeah, and, and they're they're always eating out as well. They're always going to diners and eating and restaurants and stuff. Yeah, did did you like the, the film? Seems to have this. It's commenting a bit on individualism, but I'm uncertain what it's saying, because all the the problem with a lot of the characters, like the Kevin Spacey's wife or or something, like the problem with suburbia is, you know, oh, it's too materialistic and individualistic and uh, everyone's caught up in the rat race, and they're, they're not doing anything of value. But it's also too conformist at the same time. So, like, Kevin Spacey's rebelling by becoming, like, the true individual. But he he's he seems, like, more lonely uh, than ever once, he, once he's rebelled. I'm just interested in like what what it's saying about like individualism versus living in a community, because it's yeah like what what would it be now? Everyone's even more atomized. Yeah, and and there isn't really much aspect of community in in the movie. Like Kevin is never shown with any friends or or Nate or anyone that that isn't his immediate family. It's his immediate family and himself and his job. I don't know. I don't hmm. know what that says either. 
what what I would think so so like the the 90s had a lot of these these movies like Hollywood movies criticizing suburbia and you know mainstream American life you know Fight Club Magnolia this is probably the biggest and most obvious one you know the the white picket fences at the beginning where where the wife is is uh, gardening. Yeah. I think it's, um, it's quite it's quite subversive in that regard because like the whole be you, be yourself message is portrayed as like you don't be yourself and therefore you don't have obligations to your family, you don't have you know obligations to society. But I think the the be yourself message that this in this movie very pronounced and as you said is kind of a theme in a lot of movies from the nineties. I think I think there's no there's no corresponding responsibility in it. It's just like oh yeah, be yourself, do what you want. Who hedonism? Who cares about other people? And I think that's quite mm. destructive. Yeah, and it's also it it's the idea that like Hollywood thinks that the darkest aspects of American society are amongst happy middle class people living in the suburbs. You know, the Kevin Spacey's character doesn't really have that bad of a life. And there are things he could do, you know, to get closer to his daughter or to get closer to his wife. Like, a lot of his problems seem to be his own fault. Like, sure, he's constricted by them a little, but th there's got to be some give or take. And I think if he was giving uh, a little more at the beginning, uh, he wouldn't have he wouldn't have felt the need to totally, totally let loose. And... Um, as you said, he he's not a total loser. He he has a nice house. He has a family. He has a job. Yet he's being portrayed as this total loser, and his life is being portrayed as this horrible, claustrophobic, you know, prison. Literally, that that there's there's a scene I remember where he's looking at a computer, and there are bars on the screen, and it looks like it, the the monitor's like reflecting him, and it looks like he's in prison. Uh. It's not a prison. It's fine. Like he just has to compromise a bit. <laughs> yeah, and it shows. It shows both both the, the the married families in this movie, Kevin's family, and the neighbor's family are shown to be totally unhappy, dysfunctional. Mm. The wife in the neighbor's family is just like sits there depressed all the time. Uh, I I, th I think that's that's just fundamentally not true. I think happy. I think middle class. Married families are some of the most like stable, happy uh, institutions that that we have in society. And the idea that America in the nineties, the pro as you said, the problem is is middle class married families, is just so missing the mark in terms of all the societal problems that America had then and continues to have now. Um, yeah. That again, I, yeah, again, that's why I think the movie is quite subversive in that way, and, and not in a good way. Yeah, and I, I, I think, uh, essentially, my view is you, you could live happily as part of a family or as a totally atomized individual, and uh, that they're both modern life has allowed us to choose, and uh, I think it's wrong to say that like you, you know, fa family does have its certain stresses, and so does uh, being totally lonely. But like yeah, the the idea that that one of these uh, ways is like so much better than the other, and the other one is, uh, you know, so much worse. That that that's why 
I found the characters uh, unbelievable because they're all serving this message of how horrible suburbia and middle class class life is. Like the the homophobic marine uh, dad who beats his kid all the time. Like the 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 one or two of those characteristics I could believe, but like him being a closet Nazi. Uh, being a total homophobe, being gay, abusing his son, having like a, a wife who's basically catatonic. Uh, that, that's a few too many <laughs> negative character traits for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he, yeah, he, there's there's no nuance to his character at all. <laughs> no, yeah. I, I, I just wanted something. Yeah. Like. I mean, there's there's, yeah. there's there's no nuance to anything. There, there are no nuanced characters. Every character is one dimensional. There's no yeah. there's no real character. There's no in depth look into the struggles or the the nuances within any of the characters. Kevin Spacey does what he can, yeah. and that that's part of the reason why the film is so watchable. Exactly. Like, yeah. I miss him on screen, and he's so good. Yeah. Uh, in in like such a weird way. I don't know why he's so magnetic. But it's yeah, I I just want to like see him do stuff all the time. I had a couple other kind of very specific details I wanted to to mention. Is dinner music a thing? I've never heard of this. <laughs> uh, I I occasionally have dinner music, uh, but not not like you know a set dinner music playlist. The only time uh we have regular dinner music in my family is like Christmas where we put on like Christmas dinner music in the background. But, uh, no, I, I, I don't think it's a thing. Uh, can I talk about the music for a bit? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm a big, it's classic rock, the right thing to say, but I, I like a lot of like 60s, 70s music, but I, I also like Frank Sinatra and I found the, the, the culture clash between like Kevin Spacey's boomer sensibility <laughs> where he, he he wants to like smoke weed and listen to Pink Floyd and like the wife who who, who wants to listen to these uh you know you know American songbook uh Frank Sinatra songs uh so funny and so like is that gone I think that's gone does anyone does any family listen to those anymore? Uh, and and the idea that those two are like you know sixties music or forties music, those two are the only two options that the family can listen to. Uh, I, I I found funny. Uh, yeah, what, what, what do you think of that? Yeah, no, it's true. And and how how the the, the Frank Sinatra you know nineteen fifties music is is associated with his wife, who's a, a careerist. She's striving to constantly better her career. Um, what what was the line like? To be successful, you always have to present the image of success. Mm. And then Kevin Spacey is just this selfish boomer. He just wants to chill, listen listen to Pink Floyd, smoke his weed, work out, just like. Uh, you know, not care about the man and the system. <laughs> yeah, no that that was uh, that was actually probably quite a smart thing they did by associating these two music genres with the with the two different personalities. But but also the 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 thing with like Frank Sinatra is he like for me that's peak individualism. Like it it's he's as much of like a a symbol of American individualism as the rock star is. 
because he he's this icon you know his famous song my way uh he, he he's the guy like every man wants to be he has these like mob connections he's met all these presidents uh he, he doesn't seem he he doesn't seem boring and conformist to me at all uh yeah but, i agree uh... but i think he's also associated <laughs> with like waking up in the morning and putting on your your tie and shaving and going to work yeah and, that's true you know being being the clean, hat. yeah <laughs> being like a like a 1950s early 1960s you know man who just dresses well goes to work doesn't take any shit Versus like the boomer, that's the late sixties, seventies boomer who just wants to you know dress in you know rags and <laughs> uh, just chill and isn't ambitious and just hates the man. I think I think the re- I think I I get your point about like the individualism and and you know whatever, but I still think like aesthetically there's such a difference between Frank Sinatra and his era and his aesthetic um, compared to the boomer and their era and their aesthetic yeah and it's strange how these uh these boomer icons like so many of them are still alive it's really strange and they're all still like mick jagger's 80 and like paul mccartney is 81 and like bob dylan is like 83 or something and they're all still performing and they're they've They've like become parts of the establishment, and that uh, they've like totally been subsumed by the system. But I I don't really mind that in a way because I just think like they're they're so good that they deserve to be <laughs> like sub- yeah I've got I've got subsumed by the system yeah I've got a couple of points on that one is that if you look at the the <coughs> be- bestseller charts these mm. like people from the sixties and seventies. They're still dominating. Like the Beatles is still like the, the they still like outsell like most of the modern artists. Um, you know Rod Stewart and whoever I, I watched a stream on this where the the guy looked at all the different like huge huge uh, huge names from back then, and they're still doing now like just as good as as the the modern pop stars. Like there's no comparison into how big these people are and where compared to to the the pop stars of today. And my second point was that it's been said that, you know, all generations, when they're young, they have like this rebellious, you know, instinct. They're into rebellious media. Um, and then as they grow older, they square up. Whereas the boomers, you know, they're like 70 and they're still going to rock concerts and wearing like torn jeans and like dirty T-shirts and like screaming. <laughs> and like, like they never grew up. <laughs> and that's like reflected again in the whole idea of the boomers being eternally selfish and like ruining every everything for the next generations just so they can maximize their you know what they get yeah but i like the boomers are one of the most culturally productive generations of all time like ev- most of what i like is boomer and occasionally gen x but we look at like the spiritual desert that is zuma culture and there are there are you know elements here and there of like countercultural zuma stuff happening on the internet and whatever but uh the the boomer power can't be rivaled because in many ways it's just better <laughs> uh like the apparently old music as you said is dominating spotify because people just go back uh 
and they since they don't listen to the radio and they don't discover that much new music they're they're just listening to older and older artists again uh is, is there any hip-hop in in american beauty no i don't think so at all no which which is a massive um it's totally different from mid '90s, where where that, that yeah. I think dominated. And there's probably no, because of like the yeah. milieu. Yeah, exactly. But, but I think it's because mid '90s is set in a much lower socioeconomic area and, and characters, mm. and it's also more racially diverse. Whereas American Beauty is all middle class white people. Like every character you meet in American Beauty is a middle class white person, and so I feel like, especially with how unsubtle they are, like having hip hop in, involved would be would be too i don't know too ethnic i don't know how, how a better way to put it because they're not discussing race at all in that issue the issue is entirely about the problems of middle class white people and sexuality those are the two the two themes they're very um i feel like i think they would feel that with the using hip-hop would be too much of a distraction i don't know maybe i'm reading way too much into it. no no i i get that and also the people who would listen to hip-hop would be uh the the children uh but like one one of them listens to pink floyd which is believable and then the girls don't like i don't think that they have uh much taste or or you know otherwise so uh yeah there's no there's no reason for that to be there really was this ever a good film like is it does it seem worse to us just with the benefit of hindsight or was it was it overhyped? Because it won it won best picture, best director, best actor, and uh, it made three hundred and fifty billion dollars, which is unbelievable to me. Like uh, th- this would make about thirty million dollars today. There, there's there's no way you get the masses out to see uh, to see American Beauty nowadays. I think. Yeah, I think. In some ways, of course, in hindsight, it looks worse. But also, like, if you take us aside the themes and everything, I think just the way the movie is made and the humor in it might have been somewhat novel back then. It might have given it mm. some, some, you know, originality that would have helped mellow out the unsubtlety and the forced messaging. Do you have any anything else you, you want to talk about? My My last point is... I could see this working as a novel, and I'm surprised it wasn't a novel in the first place. Mm, like, I, yeah. I imagine, like, it just seemed, the construction of it, or the, or the the way, like, the plots intersected, I could imagine this as being, like, a you know 600-page literary novel published in 96 or something uh, at the, by a hot young author you know and uh that would have maybe fleshed it out made the characters more believable uh yeah it just struck me as like very novelistic even though a lot of it is you know the fantasy sequences the way it's all kind of uh, the ending the way it's all precisely going to the certain point that feels very cinematic but but the idea of it felt very novelistic to me yeah, no, I agree, especially with the spread of characters and everything. Yeah, and I, I, I never thought of that, and I, yeah, I think that that's a really good point. I've just got a couple points in my notes I want to just bash through. 
Mm. Um, there's the one scene where uh, the neighbor asks his dad, because dad's reading the newspaper and he, he at breakfast, he's like, what's new in the world, dad? And the dad's like, this country's going to hell. <laughs> I was like, that's me living in Britain in 2023. <laughs> um... <laughs> Then let me see. Oh yeah, there was one scene where where they're quite early on in the movie where they're going to watch the cheerleading, and uh, Kevin Spacey is unhappy because he's going to have to miss his James Bond marathon. So I just wanted to mention that because I know there's a fan of this podcast who's a huge uh, James Bond enthusiast. So I just wanted to mention that scene. I thought of him instantly when that happened. <laughs> Those films are so rewatchable. It's it's unreal. Like whenever I see it on TV, and it's always it's always like Sunday afternoons on ITV4. They're showing the Spy Who Loves Me with like one hour of ads in between each <laughs> each like section. Uh, I still I still sit down and watch like at least a bit of it. Uh, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> so I I feel for you, Kevin Spacey. Okay, let's just I guess compare the two movies. Like in terms yeah. of like how the '90s was viewed back then, like what they were trying to say about themselves, versus how the '90s was portrayed, you know, more recently, basically contemporarily. Do you have any thoughts on that? Based on those two movies. Well, the 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 two movies are very different, and I think mid '90s is showing us the '90s. An American beauty is telling us what to think about the 90s. And uh, in that way, sh showing us the 90s probably probably gives us a, a more accurate view of this. But they're, but they're concerned with such different uh, different things and different characters. Like, where, where is American beauty set? Is it like Virginia or something? It feels like the Northeast somewhere. Yeah, well, um, uh, uh, mid mid nineties is in in Los Angeles and has uh, yeah very 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 different vibe. So I I don't think they're they're that comparable in in what they're trying to say. So yeah, I I, I no. would think there would be more points of comparison, but I can't I can't think of that many to be. Yeah, honest. the one the one thing I felt was I felt that what what American Beauty was trying to say was or trying to show was that in the late nineties, I think people were quite bored. I think in this in this pre nine eleven moment, mm. I think America was they were quite bored. There wasn't much going on. There was not there wasn't there was there was no excitement. I think that's why there was a lot of like if you watch stuff movies from back then, there's a lot of discussion about drugs and you know, underground cultures and stuff, because I think they're looking for something edgy, something exciting, just in this boring milieu of, you know, economic success, post-Cold War, unipolarity. I think there was this feeling of just like, this is the end of history, this is just how things are, you know, the economy is great, life is boring, there's not much going on. Whereas I feel oh. mid-90s is looking back and saying, that was actually a really good time. And that, you know, we should look back fondly and a lot of the problems, I mean, there were obviously there were problems there, but in a way there were, you know, there were struggles we could overcome and, you know, life was simpler. I don't know if that's, if that's, if I'm I know, I think objective that's or not. Correct. 
we we should have had Francis Fukuyama on this episode. Yeah. Uh, that's, <laughs> sorry, my my guest booking really let us down, but that would be amazing <laughs> uh, to have his his view on the end of history. <laughs> yeah. I, I any any final points? Um. Yeah. I just wanted to mention because suburbia is such a important theme in American Beauty. Uh, obviously, we're British. So, like, how how does a British person view American suburbia, and how does it compare to 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 British suburbia? Because I think I think Brits have a real fascination with American suburbia. I mean, even in high school geography, we spent like a whole a whole I don't know week just looking at like the economic and social and physical geography of the American suburbs. Like, I think Europeans, especially Brits like have this real fascination with American suburbs because like, whenever I bring this up to Americans they're always like why are you even asking about suburbia it's so boring <laughs> like they're they're so weirded out by the fact that I would ask you know like intriguingly like oh what's it like in the American suburbs oh when I come visit you in, in the US can you take me to the suburbs can we drive around like I don't I think because we we, we view it all through through, <laughs> through movies and, and TV shows and stuff like yeah. it's it's so exciting because there's always like actual like plot and stuff going on, whereas in reality there's like literally nothing happening, and like no matter how much they tell me that, like I can I can't get rid I can't rid myself of the image that the sub the American suburbs is like wow there's there's stuff going on there. The houses are so big, yeah. And like they've got they've got front porches, and uh, we don't even know what a front yeah. porch is. Yeah, it, it got me thinking like what were the vibes of the John Major period. Like, was it depressing? Because, like, New New Labour, obviously, Cool Britannia has a certain energy, the Millennium Dome, Blair singing Auld Lang Syne with the Queen and, like, sh- shaking her hand, all of these images. But 1990 to 97, John Major was in power for seven years, I think. Yeah, and there's almost no cultural memory of that. No. It, go- it goes Thatcher I, to Blair, and there's no memory I of the I remember watching... Like an Andrew Marr documentary where he talks about that there was that murder where like two school kids murdered a, a younger school kid. Mm, yeah, yeah. And apparently that. that that was like a big deal and helped helped Labour that you know tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. But uh, if, if that's really the the peak cultural moment in the nineties, then then uh, the John Major period must have been really depressing. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I think, have... yeah. I think there was literally nothing going on. I mean, in Scotland <laughs> there was a big drug problem, but there's still a big drug problem in Scotland. Um, in Glasgow there was a huge knife crime epidemic, which got solved, but now it's uh, moved to moved to England. Um, yeah. Well, there was a recession, and then uh, yeah, there was a, there was a collapse in the but... pound. I think in '92, uh, caused by George Soros. Um, that's not a conspiracy. It was actually caused by George Soros. Um, oh, yeah, well, he bet he bet against the pound. Yeah, yeah, and and he, um, and he beat the Bank of England. I think he's but yeah. he basically won against everyone apart from the Chinese Central Bank when he bet against the yuan. Um, but that's because they have capital mm. controls. Anyway, there's no. I don't know why we're getting, <laughs> getting into getting into that. Um, yeah, I, yeah. Black Wednesday, and then the the recession. But then then the government like got got Britain out of the recession and Blair kept kept all the fiscal plans for like three years because the government just gave him like a really good uh 
hand handed off the country in good shape. But uh, yeah, culturally, it must have been just a dead zone. Yeah, I mean, I, I went cycling around my local suburbs a couple of weeks ago. Mm. And I was actively thinking, like, how is this different from American suburbs? And first of all, it's much more dense. Like, you go, there's, like, semi-detached houses, detached houses, um, occasionally a block of flats. And it's just all, the population density is much higher. Um, whereas American suburbs, first of all, the houses are bigger. The gardens, or yards, as they call them, are bigger, um, even though they're less beautiful. Um, and so the space between each house is is, is greater, and then there's also very it's very rare to have any kind of mixed density housing within a suburb. It's all like single family homes. There's it's not like you know five single family homes and then you know a, a terrace a terrace of houses that are all connected, mm. and then you know some single family homes and then you know semi detached houses. They don't have that because of zoning laws and stuff. And so I think the population and that and that means also because because of the very low population density and also because of the zoning laws you don't have like little shops like intermingled with the with the houses whereas i think in british suburbs there's always like these wee corner shops um in scotland there's a very politically incorrect term for them which i will not repeat um but yeah the, and there's the it doesn't it doesn't force people to use cars as much cuz uh yeah, because you can walk like, to the bus yeah, stop. Yeah, where do you go if if you're in an American suburb and you run out of milk? Like, you how have, you, far you drive, is the nearest yeah, you have, supermarket? You have, to drive for five, you have to drive for, like, five miles to a massive Walmart, park your car, like, at the back of the car park, walk into Walmart, <laughs> buy your milk, and then drive home. That's why That's why there's so much drive-through. That's why there's so much, like, fast food drive-through ah. in America. Because if you're in your car anyway, if you have to use your car anyway, then it's, it's, it's more efficient to go through a drive-through than it is to stop and go and eat or get your stuff and then come back to the car. Yeah, and never all the distances are just totally different because it's it was just empty really by <laughs> most of America. Okay, I think I covered all the points I wanted to to get across. Yeah, I think we did it an exhaustive rundown. Of, yeah, uh, American beauty in mid nineties. I was and... I was expecting this episode to be about half an hour shorter than it turned out to be. So. Looks like we actually had a, a decent amount to talk about. Well, all of that will go in the Patreon exclusive episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I'm. I, I hope everyone enjoyed this uh, episode two of the Great Album. Yeah, well, we hope week. there's going to be less less space between episode two and episode three than there was between episode one and episode two. Sorry about that, guys. Uh, this episode had a a whole bunch of. Uh, bunch of production problems and getting and getting finally made so yeah if if we had a wikipedia page about this episode there would be a large section called development development uh, hell yeah de development hell but um we'll be back hopefully soonish uh with a third episode so yeah I'm, it'll, be, it'll be your turn to it. pick the movies peter so look forward to yes that. and uh we'll see you next time 